Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Amy Cox to have a discussion about rap and some of its influence on modern culture. The discussion was sparked after we both saw the Broadway show Holler If You Hear Me, a musical that uses the songs of rapper Tupac Shakur to explore a non-biographical story about the inner city. As a cultural anthropologist and professor of performance in African-American studies, Amy and I started to look at just what makes hip-hop what it is. But first, Amy explains the difference between hip-hop and rap. I think that in mainstream culture, often, and maybe this is not the case currently, but I think historically rap and hip-hop have been confused or conflated as the same thing, and they're not. So hip-hop encompasses, some would even say a culture. Hip-hop is a culture. It is an ethos, a way of living, a way of life. But if we look at the origins of hip-hop in the Bronx, and we're talking about pre-early 70s, we can talk about hip-hop being composed of not just rap, including rap. Rap, graffiti art, visual art, dancing, um, and DJing, right? So those were the four components historically, if you were were going to break down the aspects. But again, hip-hop is so much more than those four components. It's a way that people think about their connection to community. It's a way that people think about how they are connected to the spiritual world, to the creative world, to creative life, and their accountability as citizens and cultural producers. So hip-hop, a, a one way to think about it would, would be to think of hip-hop encompassing rap, right? A rap is a part sort of under the umbrella of hip-hop, and in a really, really important part because it really is about language and the importance of language and the importance of your voice and voicing. So, Amy, what is the significance of bringing a musical about a specific rapper like Tupac to a Broadway audience? Well, I think it's it's hugely significant. And over the past decade or more, maybe the past 15 years, we've seen uh, a very distinct shift in the types of productions that come to the Broadway stage. So, for example, we can talk about Rent, We can talk about the heights, and we can talk about the ways in which we're seeing on Broadway not necessarily these fantasy worlds or these sort of fairy tale um, environments, but the actual day-to-day experiences of people who live in neighborhoods surrounding Broadway, people who live in the Bronx, people whose subway lines traverse Broadway but maybe would never get off the subway to go to a Broadway show. So we're seeing the life worlds and the complicated day-to-day experiences of young people who are living, let's say, in the Lower East Side, who are trying to make it as artists. We're seeing the life worlds of, of, of people who live in Washington Heights in a way that maybe has been told in documentary stories or as a sociological study, but we don't often get to see it as a, as, as a creative form, as something that comes to the Broadway stage that is attached to a storyline, that's attached to music, that's attached to all of the things that we associate with what happens on, in the magic of the stage, of the Broadway stage. So it's no longer them over there in areas of the city that I would not necessarily go visit. Now I'm starting to, starting to see these people as people, right. as parts of my, my city, because right. I'm seeing them on Broadway. Right, and I think it's significant that we have a musical that is using the work of, of, a, of a figure like Tupac. Right. And so we have this this musical that centers around the words and, and what Tupac as a as a rapper, but as more than a rapper. So I think the significance of Tupac's 
um, crossed these boundaries where he wasn't just a rap artist, right? He wasn't just a pop cultural figure, but he in many ways is a prophet, right? So the way that Tupac talked about his own life experience, the way that he talked about the things that were happening in the various communities that he lived in, the way that he talked about his mother, the way that he talked about women, was almost like prophesizing, right? So he was telling the story of young black malehood, right, in a way that we haven't heard before in, in such um, stark reality, in such realism, with such truth and honesty, but also crossed over, right? So his music wasn't just heard by other young black men. So you were seeing, you know, young white kids, and this is what happened to rap in general, but the message that Tupac brought was in many ways, um, if we, we can almost align it with the fact that we have the Heights or we have Rent or we have now Holler If You Hear Me coming to Broadway. This crossing of, of cultures, this crossing of communities and people that we don't necessarily think should show up in certain places are start, starting to show up. And almost be accepted. Or even if they're not accepted, they're heard. Mm-hmm. So that's why I love the title of this musical, Holler If You Hear Me. You might not accept it. You might not agree with it. You might think it's um, too harsh or, oh, that's not really happening. You might deny it, but you hear it, right? And I think that's such a powerful, powerful um, aspect of of rap in general, but particularly what Tupac was doing, right? So I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell you what's going on. You can act like you don't hear it, but you will hear it. You don't, maybe you're not listening, but you will hear me. And this is part of what I think elevated Tupac's appeal from just another rapper to someone who's has this universal appeal, who is branching off into, you know, holograms that are being shown on television with him rapping with other people and he's been gone for a while. He died a while ago. I want to ask you, Amy, have you heard of something called the 27 Club? Yes. Okay. Uh, And that's musicians who died around the age of Mm -hmm. 27, Tupac dying at 25, and mainly at the height of their career. So do you think that the timing of Tupac's death played a part in his success? I, I think for sure. And I think we can say the same about Biggie. And when we look at these hugely, wildly talented young people who are taken too soon, is it too big? Can we not handle it? You know, I'm not not to be a conspiracy theorist, but you do wonder, particularly when we're talking about um, black young black men who are doing something more than just performing, right? Who are shifting things and influencing and influencing the way that people think beyond them, not just other artists, but everyday young black men who are on the streets. And so you have to wonder how that is empowering for perhaps one group of people, but maybe seemingly dangerous or volatile to to another group. And let's talk a little bit about the danger of this. How is his music, how is not just Tupac, but performers like Tupac, um, prophets, as you would say, like Tupac, why is it so dangerous for them and their message to continue and get out and be heard? Mm-hmm. It is dangerous depending on who you ask. So there's always a danger when you are in power and to a large degree your power rests on keeping people in fear, keeping people ignorant, uh, making pe- people feel as if they are um, experiencing poverty, for example, or are oppressed because of some failure within them. 
So when you have someone who is a prophet, someone who is pulling the curtain back and showing how society works and showing how power operates and making the connections between power and poverty, race and gender in a way that makes sense to everyday people, especially young people, that can be dangerous if you hold power, right? So a lot of your power rests on people not knowing or being too, quite frankly, caught up in just trying to survive and get through the day-to-day that they don't have time to really stop and really untangle all the mechanisms of how they are where they are, right? And so it becomes very easy, not just for people in power, but for people themselves who are living through poverty or living through challenges to blame themselves. If only I could, if only I fixed myself, if only these kids in my neighborhood knew better, if only... And we lose sight of the real issues, the real issues of colonialism that operate in this country, for example, and the underlying structural issues and, quite frankly, racism that exists that is a foundation of a lot of the issues that we're seeing come to light. So it can be dangerous when people start to see the truth and people start to understand why things are happening the way they're happening then becomes the possibility for them to do things to make change, right? So that influences the way perhaps people vote or the way people think about how they should put pressure on politicians and elected officials in their community to do something, how they, in fact, want to mobilize as a community to make change. So with this type of truth-telling comes a realization of what's really happening. So truth-telling, which leads to deeper understanding, which leads to potentially, and this is the dangerous part for some folks, which can then lead to action, organized collective action. And I think the most dangerous um, aspect of that is people organizing when they come together as a collective. So not just me saying, hmm, you know, it's it's been really hard out here. And, you know, even though I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm trying to, you know, I'm working and I and I have three jobs, it's just not making sense. I don't have enough money. I don't have health care. It, it's really difficult for me to take care of myself and my family. That's one thing for me to understand that in isolation. But then I have a conversation with you and we start to connect the dots and it moves beyond me to you, to our community, to these larger forces. That's powerful. And when you have prophets, when you have artists, truth tellers, prophets like a Tupac, who is who are summarizing that for us in very powerful, passionate, real ways, and it's over the airwaves, and people are listening to in their ears as they're walking down the street and seeing with their eyes and feeling what he's saying because they're living it, that's either powerful or dangerous or both. And it can start to develop from I'm singing this song because it's catchy to the song is making me think to the song is making me have some kind of action that's right involved in it that's right and I'm glad you said that I just just wanted to add you know to move from oh I really like this beat right or Uh oh I really recognize that melody to oh wait a minute you hear what he's saying and I think Tupac was a master of that sampling Music, I think of Changes, and I love this song, Changes is, is one of those songs that does that brilliantly. So we have Bruce Hornsby's um, That's Just that's The Way, the way it, is. it Is. Right. He picks these songs that almost universally you have a memory of, and you it, you almost feel the melody in, in, your, um, in your body, right? It's mm-hmm. just so, it's like a touchstone melody, 
and then he that's how you get hooked in and you have to move uh, and you have, you to, have move. to kind of bop and to then it. you start to listen to it you know because you have such a clear association with that melody with Bruce Hornsby's song and then you you know like what's listen to what he's Hold saying on. and yeah. I think he the the way that Tupac sampled was um, very strategic very strategic and, and very smart This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon talking with Fordham professor Dr. Amy Cox. We're discussing hip-hop's influence on modern culture. Amy, do you think hip-hop slash rap is steering away from that kind of conversation now? Yes and no. I, I think, you know, and I hesitate because as I get older, I find myself sounding like my, my mother. Oh, well, when we listened to music, they were saying Back something. Back in my day. And it was complicated. And this this has no, you know, there's no consciousness. And all they want to do is talk about partying. And I find myself, that's an easy thing to say. It's an easy criticism. But I don't think it's it's, whole, it's, it's wholly accurate. And so, of course, I think one thing that has shifted the way that we can talk about hip-hop is that it has gained more traction. It's It's become, it's a consumer product. It's consumed by everybody. You can hear hip-hop songs on a CVS commercial. Um, you can have young um, white kids, toddlers rapping, and we don't really think anything about it. It's just become another way to sell things as it has become another thing to buy itself as, as, a, as a cultural production. So with that, we can clearly, because the proliferation of hip-hop has become so expansive and wide, it's easy to say, oh, those conscious rappers don't exist anymore. People aren't really, these rappers or hip-hop artists aren't talking about real political issues. They're disconnected. All they want to talk about is getting money, you know, getting hoes, you know, and just degrading community. And I think part of that is that you just have more people who are more visible in the art form and it casts a shadow on those artists who are saying things that are provocative and politically oriented. And even with someone, let's take a sort of complicated figure like Kanye West, who does both. I think people are complicated. And I think the rap artists who we see, who are most visible today, are complicated in those ways. A Jay-Z, a Kanye, where they're doing both. And they're not showing that separation. Yes, I can give you a beat in a song that's talking about how much money I made. And in that same song, I can say something political or in another song on my album, I'm talking about something else, but people are complicated and nuanced and all of these things exist, not just in all of us, but in this one album and in my uh, narrative of what's, of what's happening in the world. And I, and, and I also think it's about historical timing. So we think about Tupac and we think about this whole idea of conscious rap. And you right, might remember the leather medallions, the African medallions and uh, groups, uh, Tribe Called Quest, for example, where it just was no denying what the message was. It was so in your face. And I think it's also important to understand the timing of that in the 90s, coming out of the Reagan era 80s and the frustration that was so visible and felt on the streets and it was which was a reaction to that and you hear that in the music but we also have to understand how that quote-unquote conscious rap becomes commodified and then becomes something else and it may be less legible to us or not so easily um, distinct from other types of rap right and so that's part of what I think happened so we have these categories as rap becomes something that we're hearing on the radio and not just something that's passed through these cassettes 
I'm thinking about me in the Midwest. Get the cassette that your cousin from New York or someone you knew you got. And they you got made it, it like, in their they basement. They made it in their basement. Mm-hmm. You can hear all kinds of things in the background. And it wasn't getting mainstream play. It was underground. Play. And it wasn't getting mainstream play. And now as you see the mainstream play of um, rap in particular, those categories are blurring. Right. And so where we could say before, oh, he's just all he talks about is guns and partying or all he talks about, you know, he's a conscious one where we're not seeing those categories as distinctly bounded as we did before, where you see one artist moving through those categories. I mean, and you think about it, Dr. Dre just, you know, made a billion dollars on his headphone mm-hmm. company, well, you know, so there is an influence yes. going on there. Uh, to touch a little bit more on sort of the commodifying of rap, uh, as you said, you know, rap can be heard in, in TV commercials, there are lines of clothing. Do you think there's a genuine respect for the music and the culture or do you think it's just a marketing tool? Is it just something that, hey, you know what? I can, if I if I throw a rap song in 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 my you know selling my bicycle or my my morning breakfast, that I'm gonna get this audience to purchase mm-hmm. what I want them to purchase, and I'm not necessarily really care about the culture and the history right. of this particular song. Right. So I teach a class called Black Popular Culture. And it's a class that's taught to incoming freshmen at Fordham. And I'm always struck by how little they know about the history of popular culture in general, but particularly about the influence of of African-American culture on American culture, that they aren't distinct. It's, in fact, one and the same, right, mutually influencing. And what we often talk about or what often comes up in the class is this idea of authenticity is this real black <laughs> okay gotcha. right and, and and from these students in the beginning of the class it seems as if real black is equated with good music right and so artists who seem to be acting white or too pop culture culturally or whatever are not real black and therefore not respected can you give me an example of what someone in classes has said um, was not real authentic music someone who they like but who they don't think is necessarily real black and I think this is because she however whatever you think of her Nicki Minaj she brilliantly takes on characters she is playful she is belligerent I think she is all of those things and she is a she's a woman she's a girl she's a woman and there's something about the way that she performs herself and performs characters that to the students isn't Black, authentic, and I find, or and or and or authentic, and I find that that's very interesting and that's fascinating, because their idea of blackness when they come into the class is is so homogeneous and simplified. Give me an example of what they consider authentic. They would take it back to um, KRS One, okay, or Public Enemy, like that's black, that's in your face. Ah, they're angry, they're mad. There's, you know, hmm. that's what they would. Um, call real black, but I think that's fascinating because there's something about the increased visibility of what we could call black popular culture that I think has done something that I think is very helpful, but also um, dangerous. And we want to talk about helpful and dangerous. So I think it's helpful that we see, we're beginning to see, and we have for a while, how complicated black folks are and how diverse and how heterogeneous and how we can be many things. 
And I think for these students, that is a sign that it's not real black when, in, in fact, it is blackness is all of those things. Just so like they don't are, understand how they don't it understand how complicated it encompasses all of these things. It always has. This is not new, but I think it, what is new about it is that the proliferation of these different ways of being um, are, are are coming across their air, airwaves, are seeing it on television, and so their understanding of blackness has shifted. So with that, in terms of respect, I think it depends on the audience that you're talking about. I think young people, in terms of the music that they respect, is very much tied to their own personal background, what they anticipate or what they expect to get from the music. Um, in terms of hip-hop, in commercialized hip-hop, there's I don't even think respect is probably the word I would use, I would say understanding. So I don't think there is any interest in understanding, well, what what are the roots of this cultural form? I don't even think people think of it as a cultural form. I think you're right. I think it has become so commodified and mainstreamed enough that people are comfortable. And I think comfort is a really really, um, productive way to talk about what's happened with hip-hop. People feel comfortable. They don't feel as threatened. And part of that is the fact that it has been used to sell everything from toilet paper to cookies to airline flights. So when you can take something that you haven't bothered to understand, you don't even need to really understand it, but you can take what is useful to buy and sell from that art form and almost distill it. Mm -hmm. So you can distill the form of rapping, right? Even if you don't understand the importance of voicing and and the wit behind creating lyrics and the wordplay, but you can take the, the form of using rap or you can take a bass beat and make it something that can sell other things. So you can take it out of its context and use it for other purposes and people can feel very comfortable with that thing without even understanding what it actually is. It's like the poem, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. If I set that to a beat, I'm rapping. Right. And that's not necessarily that, right, the right. truth. Right, it's more than that. So we, it almost becomes redefined through its commodification. So, Amy, are there aspects of rap slash hip hop that you think are vital for its longevity? Yes. And I think that um, the way that we talk about rap, the way that we talk about hip hop, if we tie it back to its precursors and we can go all the way back to, um, you know, if we understand traditional West African connection to music and to art in general as something that does something in the world. So whether we're talking about visual art or dance or um, poetry, spoken word, it has a purpose in the community. It does something. It transforms people. It's telling a story. It's more than just the artifact itself. So more than just the song, because it sounds good and it's nice to move to, it's more than just the piece of pottery that is a has beautiful lines, it has a function in that community. It holds water. It's passed down through the generations. There's symbolism. There's something meaningful tied to it. Now, if we think about the vital aspects of hip-hop, but I think it is that, that connection to what's happening to people in their everyday lives, and it emerges from people's everyday lives. So even though we can pick out these moguls or these hip-hop artists who are hugely popular and hugely wealthy and, and famous, it the vitality of 
the art form comes from the community, comes from what is happening to people in their everyday lives, how they are experiencing those realities, how they speak back to those realities. And really, the artist, the art form should be a vessel, should be a carrier of those messages that come from everyday people. And so if that aspect, if, if that foundational aspect is maintained, then the art form will survive and it will carry on. It, it will change and we'll continue to talk about that change and be disgruntled about it, you know, just in the way that we can talk about what happens with the black arts movement. The black arts movement as a precursor to hip hop. We, st we see those traces, but I'm sure there were folks in the 60s saying this, this art form is not doing what it's supposed to do or there, these are, there are too many um, transformations that are happening in the art form and this person is, is a real black arts movement artist and this person isn't. That, those things will always happen, but at its foundation, um, hip hop, black cultural productions, however we want to talk about it, is rooted in that connection between art forms and community life people's everyday lives and struggles and triumphs and the beauty of that. So it's not all too just about it's so hard. You know, and then that gives the impression, too, that the black experience is all about struggle. It's all about trying to um, fight against. And it, and it loses when we talk only about that. We lose the creative, generative aspect of what it means to be not just produce hip hop, but what it means to be black in this country in particular. It's a joyful experience. It's a creative experience. It's a layered, it's a complicated experience. Amy, is it going to continue, in your opinion, to be authentic, to have other cultures pick up hip-hop? I, I just read about an uh, Asian performer who's uh, performing rap and trying to get a following here in New York City. There were Asian rappers in, you know, parts of parts of Asia, mm -hmm. um, Australian rappers. Mm -hmm. Does it lose any of its authenticity by being taken up by other cultures mm -hmm. and and used and changed and molded to fit their lifestyle? Right. And so that's the age old question about cultural appropriation and who who not only has a right to perform certain types of art forms, but what does it mean when they do so? What does it mean when you hear a rap song on the radio and you're like, oh, wow, this is powerful. This this rapper is talented. The message is, is incredible. And you find out that that is, in fact, a young white woman, right, who comes from a wealthy family, who may not have experienced what she's performing or maybe performing her own experience. And so I think that's a question that we should continue to grapple with. I don't have the definitive answer, and I try to shy away from calling anything authentic or inauthentic. I think what is interesting, though, if we think about the use and the transformation, and we can talk about the co commodification of hip-hop in terms of how it's used to sell other products, for example. But we can also talk about what people find powerful and interesting about rap, for example. What is so powerful about that art form? And not, and I'm not talking about just singing, right, or just speaking, but the skill in using language in that rhythmic way to tell a story, to have to choose your words so carefully, to make it fit into a rhythmic score, to move people um, physically, 
to actually get them to dance, but also to move them in terms of how they're thinking, that is something that I would never claim just belongs to hip-hop or black folks. But when you are intentionally, as an artist, taking something, you know, it's like bricolage. You're taking, you're making a collage of things. It's important to understand where that art form comes from. And I think it's the same thing. This is a little bit of a stretch, but I'll, I'll go there. So we could also think about in the United States, for example, the, the popularity of yoga. And all over the place, yoga studios are now like the way that we would think of ballets. And it's become, in many places, sort of a physical, like you would do aerobics. Right. Just a form of exercise. Just a form of exercise. And you have you can get yoga certified to be a yoga teacher without ever understanding the Sanskrit or understanding the sort of philosophical and spiritual, and spiritual aspects connection. of it at all. And some people would say, so people are taking what's good about the poses and what is healthy and beneficial physically about yoga and they're using it for their own purposes what's wrong with that they're americanizing it they're put you know adding music and a hip-hop beat or you know uh olivia newton john music and they're making it something that works for people in the in the united states and for those communities is that cultural appropriation is that cultural denigration is that cultural transformation or is that something wholly separate from what the origins of yoga are, and we shouldn't even be calling that yoga. And that's one way that I, I don't know why that yoga analogy continues to come back to me, but I think part of it is because of the deep spiritual connection and the purpose of the art form beyond the physical, beyond what you see on the surface. And the danger when it moves through different cultural spaces and people just sort of skim off the top. I'm going to take the part, the easy part, the part that I can Finish replicate. In 30 minutes. Yeah, the part that I can replicate. I don't have to explain it to anybody. I can just take this cool part and transform it and call it by the same name when, in fact, it's doing something very different. I'd like to thank my guest, Fordham professor, Dr. Amy Cox. I'd also like to thank my producer, Dan Murphy. Stay tuned for Cityscape with George Bodarkey. That's up next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.